Morning. Hey, just to clarify, in case anybody's confused, the, the Meet the Staff pizza event is after the second service, so you are welcome to stay for both services. You're welcome to go home, come back, and have pizza with us, but if you're expecting to get 10 a.m. pizza, you're not going to get that, so just to make you aware of that. Hey, um, <clears throat> we started this series uh, on the life of David called After God's Own Heart, and so we're obviously not going to have enough time to go through every detail of David's life, look at every verse and every chapter that talks about David, but instead what we're doing is kind of going, doing this overview thing so we get a sense of some of the lessons that we can learn and the things that apply to our lives related to the stories of David. But the interesting thing about David's life story in the scripture is that uh, most times you have a, a biography, you, you start out slow and you build up and build up and there's some crescendo near the end. David's big moment is right at the beginning. And, and so we looked last week at uh, Saul and the comparison between Saul and David and talked about what that looks like and how David was anointed to be king. And this week, we come to what is probably the most famous story in the Old Testament, might be the most famous story in the Bible. Um, it's a top five Sunday school story. Every flannel graph has it. You guys remember flannel graphs? Anybody know flannel graphs, right? I know, we're so stinking old. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I guess it's not flannel graphs. It's like video and, and all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, there's always uh, in children's Sunday school, you're going to have the story of Adam and Eve at some point, you know, hiding behind carefully placed bushes. You're going to have uh, the story of Noah's Ark. That's a big one. You're going to hear about Daniel and the lion's den, Jonah and the great fish, and you're going to hear about David and Goliath. And in fact, I would say that the, the story of David and Goliath is probably the best known story outside of those who are exposed to the Bible. Everybody has heard about the story of David and Goliath. In fact, it's become sort of uh, a universal colloquialism. It's used all over the place. When there's a, a big company competing for market share against a small company, we call that a David and Goliath story. When there's a great team battling a upstart team, we call that a David and Goliath story. When there's a heavyweight boxer who's the champion of the world and there's some new guy coming up, we call that a David and Goliath story. The the idea, as we all know, is that there's this story about the little guy who goes up against the big guy and has to overcome immense odds in order to succeed. So we're all familiar with this story, which is a challenge for me as a preacher, because I'm not going to tell you anything new. If you've never been in church before, you know this story. If you have never read the Bible, you know this story. Um, and there's a danger, though, that because we're so familiar with this story, we might actually miss the point. First thing I think of is that most people have heard some version of this story somewhere, somehow, but they haven't actually studied it in the scripture. 
And because of that, you can easily miss the point of the story. The second thing is that because it's so familiar, we already think we understand it, and so we just kind of stop listening and tune out, right? Because we've all heard the way the story is told to children. This is a children's story, right? I got news for you. This is not a children's story. But we tell it to children, and we go, listen, listen, boys and girls. Boys and girls, eyes here. Everybody listen now. Let me tell you this story. There was an amazingly huge giant, and he was a terrible mean man, and he was big. And you take, a, you take the tallest kid in the room, and you bring him up, and, and you go, he was bigger than Bobby. And you let Bobby sit down, and you go, in fact, he was bigger than me. In fact, he was bigger than your dad. In fact, he was bigger than Shaquille O'Neal. In fact, he was so big that he could not be here today because his head would be sticking out of the roof. He's that big. And he came up in a battle because he hated God and he hated God's people. And so God sent a warrior to fight him who was a little boy. And the little boy, David, he, he looked at that giant, and although all the warriors were afraid, David was not afraid. And so David took some stones and a sling, and he went out, and he knocked that giant down, and the giant lost the battle, and the other army ran away. We don't tell them about the chopping off the head part. That's, that's a little much. We do that in middle school, because the boys love that. But... but but we tell them about all that, and we go, isn't that amazing, boys and girls, because you know what? We all face giants in our lives. We all have problems that we don't know how to overcome, but you can be like David. If you're courageous and strong, you can go out, and you too can defeat your giants. And now, boys and girls, let's do our craft. That's what we do with kids. And we miss the entire point of the story. See, if, if you haven't actually studied from this story in 1 Samuel, I guarantee you that if you do, or even today, listen with an open heart, God is gonna show you some truth that could actually change your life. Because most of us have been taught that this is a story about a boy who kills a giant, but this is not a story about David. And by the way, it's not even a story about Goliath. And, and if you've been taught that this is a story about how we all need to be more like David so we can slay our own giants in life, then you have missed the entire point of the story. This is a story that offers a completely different perspective on life. On the flannel graph version, David is a runt compared to Goliath. And Goliath is a giant compared to David. But if that's all you see, you haven't even noticed the main character in the story who's the actual giant. And compared to him, Goliath is tinier than a flea. So we're gonna see this story in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17. Hopefully you found 1 Samuel last week. If not, find it this week. We're gonna be in chapter 17 today. And we're gonna pick it up at the beginning of chapter 17 in verse one. Now, you probably know that at this point in history, the arch enemies of Israel are the Philistines. The Philistines are a mighty army. They, they're the neighboring um, 
nation and they are constantly invading. You saw what God did last time to the Amalekites who were constantly invading. And now we have this issue with the Philistines, right? And so we pick it up in chapter 17. Now, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and they camped between Soko and Azekah in Ephesdamim. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. Now, most of those are, are places you've never heard of and places I probably mispronounced terribly. But, but in Israel, you, you can go, if you ever do a tour in Israel, some of you have done this, you've probably been to the valley, the valley of Elah where you, you stand on one side where the hills slope up and you go, this is where the army of Israel was camped. And then you see this flat land in between with the stream running through it. And then on this side, the hills go up. And you go, and this is where the Philistines were camped. And they would literally, this was the tradition of the way they did battle. You've seen it in movies, like Braveheart or something, right? These battles are one-day deals. They line up, they get as many guys as they can with as many weapons as they can. They get them all hyped up and ready to go. And they charge into the field together they fight all day long and whoever's uh, got the most people left at the end wins and that's how it usually works so that's what's happening and they're about to go into battle verse 3 the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath whose height was six cubits and a span he had a bronze helmet on his head and he was clothed with scale armor which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. He also had bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze javelin swung, slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield carrier also walked before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, why do you come out to draw up in battle? Am I not a Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. And if I prevail against him and kill him, you shall become our servants and serve us. Again, the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, I know that as I was describing him there, you were picturing all of this in your head. You know exactly how many shekels that is, right? And you know what a weaver's beam looks like, and you have a great picture of this in your mind, right? But um, let me just help you to understand a little bit about what was just described. First of all, according to scripture, Goliath was over nine feet tall. And his armor, just the part that he wore above the waist, weighed 120 pounds. Just his armor. And, and his spear, which was the, the width of a weaver's beam, which, whatever that means, and had a point on the end of it. The point of the spear, just the head of the spear, weighed 16 pounds. Now, <clears throat> have you ever been to the bowling alley where you gotta go pick out a bowling ball? 
They have the little bright green ones and orange ones and they're like 10 and 11 pounds and you're like, I want that one. The heaviest bowling ball you can get is 16 pounds. So pick up one of those big bowling balls and you go, okay, that's what the tip of his spear weighed. And he had armor bearers in front of him who held up armor to make sure that uh, you couldn't get to him. And, And so... He comes out and he's constantly in the scripture as if we took the time to read it all, you would see that he comes out twice a day. He comes out in the morning and he comes out in the evening. And he does so for 40 days. So they're camped on the hillsides ready to go into battle. But the Philistines are saying, hey, we have a proposal. We want to do a different kind of battle. We can save a lot of lives here. Let's just get your best guy against our best guy. And they send out their best guy, and he's this massive giant. And he's taunting them. And he's taunting God. And he does it in the morning, and he does it in the evening. And 40 days go by, and no one answers his call. And if we're not careful, we're going to be in awe of the immense size and strength of Goliath. But remember, it's all a matter of perspective. Remember just a few verses back, we see Samuel going to anoint a king from among the sons of Jesse, right? We talked about this last week. And the first son he meets is Eliab, the eldest son of Jesse. And he is impressive, He is big, he is tall, he is strong, he is handsome, he is everything Samuel thinks a king ought to be, and even Samuel is awed by his presence. He looks it up at him and says, surely this must be God's man, and God says, no, this is not the man. And what does God tell him? Don't be distracted by his outward appearance, for man judges based on the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. It is a matter of perspective. And as we turn the page to chapter 17, what do we get in the first 11 verses? An in-depth description of an impressive outward appearance. And all of us shudder, and you put yourself in the, in the boots of those uh, soldiers who were lined up on the Israeli side, and you say to yourself, I would have been shaking in my boots. There's no way I want to fight this guy. We have a much better chance fighting them as a whole army than we do one-on-one against this guy. So we've just been told that God doesn't want us to look at the outward appearance. Don't miss the contrast. It's this way on purpose in here. It's put there so that we go, here's an outward appearance that we would be incredibly, incredibly impressed with. Goliath is huge, and everyone is terrified of him. I love what it says after the description of Goliath and the way that he taunts. Look again at verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. I would be dismayed and greatly afraid too. I imagine you would as well. Have you ever seen uh, footage of those early um, mixed martial arts bouts before they had all the organization, the rules, and what, they had no weight classes. So what they would do is they'd bring out some little 130-pound karate expert, and he would go up against a 550-pound sumo wrestler. And it would be like, okay, let's see who wins. And you look at them in the, in the cage together, and you're like, oh, this is a complete mismatch. That's not what this was like. 
What this was like was if you take that same 130 pound guy without all of the martial arts training against the US Army tank. That's a better picture. The difference between Goliath and any man they could send out to fight him. When Saul and his army saw Goliath, they knew there was nobody who could possibly defeat him in hand-to-hand combat. Of course they're shaking in their boots. That makes sense. He wasn't just the biggest guy there. He was the biggest, strongest, most powerful person any of them had ever seen in their lives or ever would see. But as it turns out, Goliath wasn't the biggest guy there. There was an infinitely more powerful one there, and it wasn't David. This is not a story about David's heroism. And, and, and if you think it is, you have missed the point. This is not a story about David's amazing battle plan. If it is, you miss the point. Um, I read a book a few years ago by an author that I really like named Malcolm Gladwell. I don't know if you guys have heard of him. He writes great books on leadership and perspective on the world. And, and he wrote a book on, on the story of David and Goliath, pretty big book on just this one chapter of David and Goliath's story. And and I read it. As soon as I saw that he had written a book on a biblical uh, issue, I ran out and got it and read it quickly. And it was great. There was all of these great principles in it. And it's all about how, as an underdog, you can still win the battles, right? And how do you do it? You do it by recognizing the weaknesses of your opponent. You do it by recognizing your relative strengths. You do it by having a great battle plan. You do, And he does this whole description of how brilliant David was in that he never got close enough for Goliath to touch him. Instead, he used his speed and he realized the big guy couldn't move fast. He did all these things so that he defeated the giant. And Gladwell's point is that if we underdogs in life will apply these same things, whether it's in business or in sports or in whatever it is that you're interested in, then we too can defeat the giants in our lives. I read this whole book, I don't know, what is it, maybe 350 pages 300 pages, I read this whole book and I closed it at the end with all these great business principles and I went, he missed the entire point. He thinks the story is about David's brilliant strategy. He thinks the story is about how David used the other guy's uh, strengths against him. Now he's a brilliant guy and he's written a brilliant book but when he wrote this book, he missed the entire point somehow. Because despite his analysis of this whole story of David and Goliath, he didn't get it. He chalks up David's victory to a brilliant strategy and execution of his plan. But this is not a story about planning. It's not a story about strategy. It's not an appoint- a story about how to use your opponent's strengths against him. It is not a story about how you too can be victorious as an underdog. That's not it. In fact, it's not about David at all. And it's not about Goliath either. And if you think it is, just like Malcolm Gladwell, you might have heard the Sunday school version, but you have missed the whole point. So let's get back to the story. We know that David is the youngest of eight brothers, the sons of Jesse, right? And by the way, if you're wondering, people go, how old was David when this happened? We don't know, it doesn't tell us exactly, but we do have clues. Here's what we know. You had to be at least 20 years old uh, in Israel to fight in the army. 
And we know that David's three eldest brothers were in the army. So those three must have been 20, 21, and 22, or a little bit above that, right? And, and assuming that they were having a child every year, David is the eighth. So we have three, 22, 21, and 20. And then we have number four, that would be 19. Number five would be 18. Number six would be 17. Number seven would be 16. And number eight would be 15. Unless there was some twins or triplets in there, right? So, so we have this pretty good guess that David is somewhere between 14 and 16 years old when this happens, okay? And, and his three eldest brothers are off on the battlefield as part of Saul's army, and Jesse, their father, has not heard anything for 40 days. Now, remember what I said. These are one-day battles, maybe two days, but for the most part, these are one-day battles. These are skirmishes. He sends his eldest boys off to the battle and doesn't hear a word for 40 days, now, how would you feel if you were his parent? Terrified. So he says, I need to get news of the battle. I need to check on how my sons are doing. And so he says to David, I'm gonna load up a cart with provisions. I want you to take them to where the battle is, and I want you to find your brothers, give these provisions to them, and bring back news of the battle. Pick it up in verse 20. So David arose early in the morning and left the flock with a keeper and took the supplies and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle line and, and entered in order to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines, and he spoke these same words, and David heard them. When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. The men of Israel said, have you seen this man who's coming up? Surely he's coming up to defy Israel. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Now, David heard Goliath's taunts he knew that Goliath was taunting God, taunting the armies of God, taunting Saul. He knew about that. And his first thought apparently is, how can anyone stand by and let this guy blaspheme? Then he starts to hear this has been going on for 40 days. How can anybody stand here and let this guy say these things and nobody steps up to do anything about it? And he starts expressing his outrage about this and someone told King Saul about David's outrage, so Saul, uh, his outrage, so Saul called for David. Now, King Saul had been trying to find someone who would fight Goliath. In fact, the scripture says that he had made an amazing offer to anybody who would volunteer for the job. Now, this is not in the Bible. I'm giving you this for free. This just comes from me, okay? So, so here's the thing. I'm just picturing how he does this. And if he's like almost every other leader I know, he started small. And he probably said, hey, everybody, I'll give a $1,000 bonus and a week's paid vacation to anybody who goes out and fights. And they all sort of looked around and said, no takers. And, and so after a little while, he ups it and he says, I'll make it 10 grand and a month's paid vacation. 
no takers. So finally, Saul makes the pot even sweeter. Verse 25 tells you what his offer is. Uh, Have you seen this man who's coming up? Surely he's coming up to defy Israel. It will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, will give him his daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel. So you are going to be given a truckload of money. And you're going to get to become part of the royal family. You're going to marry the daughter of the king and move into the royal line. And by the way, everyone in your father's household, that is you, your brothers, your father, your descendants, from now on will never pay taxes again. Now, we're Californians. We should... (laughs) That's an offer. That is a serious offer, right? Imagine in California if they said, you're never gonna pay taxes again. I would do almost anything. I would jump at any offer that included no more taxes. So, so he's made the pot as sweet as he possibly can, and David expresses interest, and somebody tells Saul that David is interested. Now, by the way, before we get too far into this story, I want you to think about something. The Philistines are sending their biggest and baddest warrior twice a day for 40 days. And he was asking Israel to send their biggest and baddest champion. Anybody know who that was? Saul. The scripture told us already that Saul, the reason that everybody wanted him to be king is because he was head and shoulders taller than the next tallest man in Israel. He was a big dude. He was a warrior. Most kings were in those days. And he had a bunch of war experience. The people followed him into war. He was their leader. He was their biggest, their strongest, their most equipped to go and fight Goliath. And and so uh, the people chose him for that reason. And every time Goliath came out with his taunts, asking for a challenger to face him, I would just imagine that everybody turned and looked at Saul. And Saul didn't want any part of this because even Saul was tiny compared to Goliath. And all he could see was his size compared to the giant size. He lacked a perspective of faith which factored in God's size. Look at verse 31. When the words which David spoke were heard, they told them to Saul, and he sent to him. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Then Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth while he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock. I went out after him, attacked him, and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. Verse 37. And David said, The Lord who delivered him, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. And then he, he clothed David with his armor, which didn't work at all. So David takes off the armor and goes out there dressed as a shepherd. Now, I don't think David's bragging here about his own power. 
he's just the only one in the story who has the perspective of faith. He's the only one that although he knows how small he is, he also knows how big God is. He, he recognizes his size, Goliath's size, and he goes, it's all irrelevant compared to God's size. David doesn't expect to use his brilliant strategy to take out this warrior. He's not planning to use his quickness or thinking that his weapons are better or anything like that. He expects the Lord to deliver him. Verse 37, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. I've said it before. Let me say it again. Your life is not about you. It's not about your power. It's not about your weaknesses. It's not about your wisdom. It's not about your resources. It's not about your plans. And it is certainly not about your glory. If you are a follower of Jesus, your life is about God. It's about his wisdom. It's about his power. It's about his knowledge. It's about his plans. And it's about his glory. And at this moment, David seems to be the only guy in the armies of Israel who understands that truth. Now, before we fall all over ourselves praising David for his amazing faith, let me remind you of something. David's just like you and me. His motives even here are clearly mixed. Sure, he's offended at how God is being mocked. Uh, sure, he has faith that God can deliver him and the rest of Israel, no matter how big this giant is. But he doesn't do anything until he hears about the prize. He hears about the prize, and then he goes to his brother and says, uh, what about this prize? And his brother goes, get out of here. You're bugging me. Go away, kid. You bother me. And so he goes somewhere else and goes, hey, what about the prize? How much does the guy get who, who takes on this guy? Now, he's a 15, 16-year-old kid. Now, every 15, 16-year-old boy I know is thinking about two things, women and money. <laughs> how do I get a girl and how do I get enough money to buy a pizza? That's what he's thinking about. And David is the eighth son of Jesse. You know how long he's gonna wait for a wife? Do you know how long he's gonna wait to get his career started? Now, he's been anointed as king. That happened years ago. Nothing has happened. Seems to be a joke. He's gotta take matters into his own hands, and he hears about this, and he's gonna get women and money and power and prestige. And he goes, you know what? I think I'm about that. And, and if you look at verse 30... Again, it says, he turned away from him to another and said the same thing. And the people answered the same thing as before. He, there, there's three times here where he finds out about what the payoff is. What's the payoff? And so he seems to be motivated. He seems to have faith. He seems to be motivated by honoring God. But he is also clearly motivated by earthly desires. And... Um, by now, he's looking for a way to fast forward his life. And for the next 38 chapters, now that we've seen that David is motivated by the idea of access to women, access to money, and access to power, for the next 38 chapters, we see him stumbling over those things again and again and again. This is a very important moment in his life. 
it foreshadows where the story is going. He will fail miserably on multiple occasions in his quest for women, power, and wealth, and recognition. In other words, he's just like you and me. He's just a man. He's not a hero, but there is a hero in this story. And he is much bigger than David or Saul or even Goliath for that matter. David was imperfect to say the least, but he served a perfect God. Can anybody relate to that? He was imperfect. He lacked resources. He lacked strength. But he served a God who lacks nothing. And you know what happened next? You know, he grabbed some stones. He'd only need one. He put it in a sling. He walked out into the field. He slung it hit the Philistine between the eyes, dropped him, he went and picked up his sword, chopped off his head, picked up his head, probably with both hands, picked up his head and walked away and the armies of the Philistines fled and the Israelites routed the Philistines that day. But it wasn't David who killed Goliath. Don't mistake this, it was God. And that's where Malcolm Gladwell and a whole bunch of Sunday school teachers have gotten this wrong. They, they chalk it up to David's strategy, brilliant maneuvering, but the point of the story is not that you can do anything you put your mind to and you can take out your giants. That's not the point. The point of the story is that God can do anything and he will use even lowly, weak you to move his plans Ahead, despite all your weaknesses, despite your wrong motives, it's God who can use you. So it wasn't David who delivered Israel that day. And, and, and you know, it goes on to talk about how there was a parade and they brought the soldiers back into town and the people lined the streets and they sang songs. And you know who the songs were about? David. And this is the beginning of Israel's misunderstanding of what it means to follow God. We are so enticed by human leaders. We're so interested in human heroes. We want a political candidate to tie our wagon to and, and we're gonna be in that camp forever. And if we lose half of our friends on social media, so be it. If we can't have a reasonable conversation with people in our own family at Thanksgiving, so be it but we are gonna tie our wagon to a political leader who's going to be our hero. When has a political leader ever delivered you anything? We tie our wagons to a relationship, we tie our wagons to a job um, or our career path or a degree that we're trying to get. If only I have this, everything will be okay. And God says, you, will you just please get your eyes off that and get your eyes up here? I wanna be your hero. You don't need a better game plan. You don't need to be a more impressive person. You don't need to muster up enough faith from deep down inside. All you need is a relationship with the one true hero. You don't need to be great. He's already great. You just need to trust him enough to let him control your life. And then sit back and watch what he can do when you trust him enough to give him the keys and make it about his glory. And now, unto him who is able 
to do more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's stand together. Lord, we are impressed with you, but frankly, we are not impressed enough. We, we are distracted by things that are so much smaller than you, and, and we are drawn to things that sparkle and shine, that get our attention, and we, we're tempted to put our trust in them. But oh God, we confess today that there is none greater than you. There is none mightier, there is none wiser, there is none better, there is none more loving. You alone are God, you alone are our hero, you alone are our hope. And so God, we we place our hope in you. Help us, God, with all of our mixed motives, with all of our weaknesses, with all of our challenges. Help us not make it about how we can defeat giants, but help us instead make it about how we can glorify your name, be available to you for anything you wanna do in our lives or through us. God, transform our lives so that others will see us and give you the glory you deserve. Or we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. All God's people said, amen. Amen.